O.J. Simpson was scheduled to turn himself in to the Los Angeles Police Department on June 17, 1994 at 11 a.m., five days after the bodies were found. He was to be charged with the double murder of his ex-wife, Nicole Brown Simpson, and Ron Goldman. Simpson was scheduled to surrender this morning to the Los Angeles Police Department. He has not appeared. The Los Angeles Police Department right now is actively searching for Mr. Simpson. After being a no-show, it looked a lot like Simpson was making a run for it. What happened next brought the country to a standstill. This was the beginning of a national obsession. This is a Channel 5 News special report. There is a rather amazing story developing in Los Angeles this hour where California Highway Patrol is in pursuit of a white Ford Bronco, a car that was reported to be one that might contain O.J. Simpson and a friend earlier today. Simpson and Al Cowlings, a friend and former teammate, took police on a 75-mile slow-speed chase at top speeds of 35 miles per hour. This took place for over two hours and spanned across three Southern California freeways. He left a letter with his attorney that read a lot like a suicide note. It included this line, don't feel sorry for me. I've had a great life, great friends. Please think of the real OJ and not this lost person. This is, this is AC. I have OJ in the car. Okay, where are you? Please, I'm coming up the five freeway. Okay. Right now, we all, we are okay, but you got to tell the police to just back off. He's still alive, but he got a gun to his head. Simpson was a fugitive from justice, and eventually, an entire convoy of cops was tailing him. Picture the massive 405 freeway in Southern California with police cars spread across all lanes in pursuit of Simpson. Helicopters hovering above. The public is crowding the overpasses with signs that read, Run, OJ, Run, and Go, OJ. When the Bronco exited the 405, the chase became even more dangerous. Heading west on Sunset Boulevard towards Simpson's home, Cowlings doubled his speed and blew through red lights. OJ, it's Tom. How you doing? Right, you just tell them at my house. I know they're all over the place with guns. They're, they're not going to do let it. let them know I'm not coming there to hurt any of them. Okay, they know that. They don't want to hurt you. You going to go to the house? That's why I told you we weren't. You know, you just let them all know. You let the police know. You let them all know. I wasn't running. I know you I weren't running. To to, I know you I weren't running. I was trying to go to Nicole's grave. I know you weren't running. Now I, I know you weren't, man, but you yeah. got everybody scared. Yeah. You got us all scared with a gun, man. 95 million Americans went along for the ride glued to their TVs. That's almost more than five times the amount of people who watched the final episode of Game of Thrones. There had never been live TV coverage like this before. Networks cut away from Game 5 of the NBA Finals and the fairway of the U.S. Open. It was unheard of. I remember sitting in my house like everybody across the country watching that. And people in my house were thinking, oh, just shoot him, just shoot him. I'm thinking, no, no, no. We want to see this through. We want to go to court. You know, we want to know the truth. We want to get justice. Everybody loves you. Don't do this. Just throw the gun out the window. We're not going to bother you. We're going to let you go up there. Just throw it out the window, please. You're scaring everybody. I know you're thinking. Oh, man. Just throw it out the window. Uh, nobody's going to get hurt. 
I'm the only one that deserves. No, you don't deserve that. Hurt. You do not deserve to get hurt. You do uh, not deserve to get hurt. Don't do this. All I did was love Nicole. That's all I did was love her. Listen, you've been a man all your life. Uh, no, don't stop now, OJ. Don't give in now. Uh, Juice, don't give in now. You've been a man all your life. You're admired. Don't give it up. Uh, you're listening to me. You're thinking. I know you're thinking. Oh, you're tired, too, aren't you? Huh? I'm so tired. I know. I know. I just want to be with Nicole. You don't need to be with Nicole. You need to be with your family and with your kids. And finally, Simpson arrived back at his home where he surrendered to the police almost 10 hours after he was scheduled to turn himself in. What did they find in the Bronco? $9,000 in cash, Simpson's passport, family photos, a disguise, and the gun he had held to his head. This is Confronting O.J. Simpson. I'm your host, Kim Goldman. The voice you heard on that phone call, persuasively talking to O.J. Simpson and trying to de-escalate that gripping scene, that's Los Angeles Detective Tom Lang. How did Tom Lang end up on the phone with O.J. Simpson during the Bronco chase? Well, that's an interesting story. Hello? Tom, it's Kim Goldman. Hey, Kim, how you been? I'm okay, how are you? Oh, not too bad. Tell me, what was that like for you to be essentially his lifeline at that point? I mean, you were the only guy he was talking to. The first thing that hit me was I'm in the office and I see the so-called chase. Nobody's talking to anybody. Everybody's looking at each other. Nobody's doing anything. Then the, the Orange County Sheriff say, oh, he's got a gun. He's got it to his head. They're moving slowly. It's all weird. Somebody's got to talk to him. Something had to be done. I'm not worried about him. He's got a gun. I'm worried about the cops that are so close. Right. He gets into the West L.A. area. There's people running up to the car. I gave him a call. I never expected him to pick up. And he did. Five times. There were five different calls because he kept going in and out of cells. So I kept, I kept losing him. But the only reason to call was to get his mind off of the gun, turn himself over, it'll all be better tomorrow, and all this other BS that I'm trying to throw at him. One of the criticisms, though, has always been that you treated him with kick gloves, but then you weren't acting professionally enough. There's a reason for everything, and everybody gets treated differently as to their personality. You're not going to treat some uh, gangbanger out there with a third grade education who stabs somebody in a fight the same as you're going to uh, take on some kind of a sociopath who's still known to every person in the world. Okay, do you wish to give up your right to remain silent and talk to us? Uh, yes. Okay, and you give up your right to an attorney present while we talk? Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. Okay, so bear with us. This interrogation is from 1994, and it sounds that way. We're going to help with the parts that are hard to hear. Simpson is in this interview, and it's clear that he has an injury on his hand. Detective Lang and his partner, Phil Van Adder, interview Simpson and read him his rights. Simpson gives up his right to remain silent, and the conversation is congenial. Simpson seems cooperative. The interview in particular, I broke it down, where we caught him with inconsistent statements. How did you get the injury on your hand? I don't know. 
I'm not the first. I know how to pet when I was in Chicago. I know how, but at the house, I was just running around. About 12 minutes into the interview, the detectives ask Simpson about how he injured his hand. Simpson responds, quote, I don't know. The first time when I was in Chicago and all, but at the house, I was just running around. So Van Adder asks, how did you do it in Chicago? How did you do it in Chicago? I'm probably glad that this is, you had one of you guys that just called me and I was in the bathroom and I just kind of went for a little bit. Simpson responds, I broke a glass. One of you guys had just called me and I was in the bathroom and I just kind of went bonkers for a little bit. Bonkers because they called him to tell him his ex-wife was murdered. Detective Lang pushes him more. Is that how you said it? Is that how you cut it, he asked. OJ responds, mm, it was just cut before, but I think I just opened it again. I'm not sure. So you, you recall bleeding and all then, about 20 seconds later, he tells the detectives, yeah, I mean, I knew I was bleeding, but it was no big deal. I bleed all the time. I play golf and stuff, so there's always something. Nicks and stuff, here and there. So, to summarize, we have, I don't know, a glass in Chicago and golf. We'll talk about that later. So your quote-unquote colleague, lead prosecutor, Marsha Clark, she accused you of being soft in the interrogation. How do you feel about that? Okay, to begin with, Marsha was not a colleague. I didn't want her. I had a bad experience on her in that contract killing earlier when she pulled the rug out after a year of investigation. So I, I had no use for Marsha. Marsha was a very intelligent person. She was a good prosecutor. But for whatever reason, she had her own personal reasons on this and her own agenda. As it turned out in the end, and we see now, I mean, she's got her own show on TV and all this other BS. There were several witnesses who sounded like they would have been helpful for the prosecution, and they never testified. Why didn't Marsha Clark call them to the stand? Well, she determined they were tainted or dishonest. But was that a good decision? You rehabilitate witnesses when it goes against you. And she never rehabilitated anybody. And that's what you do. If you're trying to rehabilitate a witness, your goal as a lawyer is to acknowledge any problems with your witness or their story before the other side does. Were there any other witnesses that you think should have testified that Marsha didn't put on the stand? Use Jill Shively, for example, right? So Jill Shively was the witness that didn't testify, but she was the witness that saw him fleeing the scene, or she didn't know it was the scene, but she saw him fleeing, driving erratically. Or frankly, I think we, we could have used her. Marsha didn't want to use her because she got $5,000 for a hard copy or something. She got paid off by hard copy. Hard copy was a big tabloid television program at the time. And Jill, well, she was a neighbor of Nicole. We'll hear more about Jill in a little while. She didn't use the guy at the airport. And so you see Simpson jamming all this stuff in the trash can, for God's sake. When someone is stabbed to death, there's going to be bloody clothing shoes, a knife, but those items were never found. Did this hurt the prosecution's case? Maybe. There was a man named Skip Junis who came forward to say he saw O.J. Simpson do something that might have been significant on the night of the murders, something he did at Los Angeles International Airport. A limousine pulled up and O.J. Simpson got out of the limousine. 
it was a little zipper bag and he just zipped it a little bit, just enough to get his hand in the bag. And he was pulling items out of the bag and putting them in the trash can. Juna spoke with Marsha Clark, but she never called him to testify. Another source of frustration for Detective Lang. What this answers is, where's the bloody clothing? Uh-huh. Where's the shoes? Where's the weapon? Look, you never have too much evidence in a murder case, period. And you didn't see a whole lot of evidence put on in this case. She didn't use that. She didn't use a half a dozen things. Right. In any murder investigation, there's something exculpatory. I'm going to say in 95%, of all murder investigations, there's something exculpatory. Okay, if you haven't sat through a nine-month trial or been to law school, exculpatory evidence is evidence that is favorable to the defendant. This is one of those very, very rare cases that there was absolutely nothing exculpatory. How can there be any doubt in anyone's mind about what happened? There can't be for any reasonably thinking person. They made a very general accusation about cops planning evidence, about cops being taught to lie in the police academy, about Furman planning the glove. I can't stand Furman, but he didn't plan any glove. Mark Furman was the police officer accused of planting a bloody glove at the murder site. While he was one of the lead investigators, he was a terrible witness for the prosecution. For starters, he had given hours of interviews on tape to a scriptwriter where he used the N-word multiple times. And to make matters worse, he didn't tell anybody that those tapes existed. He didn't warn the prosecutors. Well, that was one witness they couldn't rehabilitate. He gets on the stand, and when he's asked, would you ever plant evidence in any murder case, and he pleads the fifth? Right. God, it's all over. I was like, what the fuck? Excuse my French, but like, what the fuck are you doing? We had people that looked at this blood. The blood was spattered. Blood evidence was a huge part of the case. Investigators found blood on a pair of Simpson socks in his bedroom after the murders. DNA revealed the blood was from both OJ and Nicole. This looked very good for the prosecution. But the defense, well, they had a defense. Distrust persisted between the LAPD and the community they served. So when the defense team revealed that Detective Van Adder stopped at OJ's residence instead of going directly to the lab with the sealed blood sample in his pocket, they raised doubts about the investigation. I get Alan Bershowitz. To this day, he comes out and says, Phil poured the blood on the socks. Attorney Alan Dershowitz worked on OJ Simpson's defense. Alan, what's your take? The LAPD has a real problem, uh, and they've had it for years. Uh, they took home blood samples, what they shouldn't have done uh, during the trial itself. And uh, our evidence was that they poured some of the blood on one of O.J. Simpson's socks to create a piece of incriminating evidence in order to frame somebody that they honestly believe was guilty. That's a flat-ass lie. The blood was spattered. When it's projected spatters, it cannot be poured. There's 39 projections of blood on the one sock, 19 on the other. Regardless, we got the blood in the beaker. The beaker gets sealed itself. It gets put into a sealed envelope and it gets stickers put all over it and we sign the stickers. Anytime you break that open, you're gonna break one of those stickers and it has to be accounted for. Simpson's blood, Ron's blood, Nicole's blood was also found in the white Bronco. 
Now, if we did that, don't you think that everybody in the world looking at this thing for 20-something years would see some evidence showing that that actually occurred? The keys, Nicole's keys, 10 days before she was killed, she told her mother, I think O.J. stole my keys to the house here. Well, guess what we find in his person at the time of the Bronco chase? Her keys. Uh. He did steal her keys. Why would we not want to put that into evidence? You know, did you know that? No. I'm gonna need, I'm gonna need a stiff drink after this, Tom. This is just the beginning. Ross Covery, downtown LA. The store sells Simpson a long bladed knife that is sharpened at the store after a request from Simpson weeks before the killings. We obtained a duplicate of the knife from the store. You may remember that was a special prosecutor envelope that we never saw. It's dimensionally compatible with the wounds on both victims. Why would you not put all that stuff in there? This is the one I really like. We had the Bruno Mollies identified within five or six weeks. These are rare shoes, not everybody has them. A very distinct bloody footprint at the crime scene helped detectives determine that the killer wore a size 12 shoe made by designer Bruno Mali. These were very expensive shoes and only 299 pairs of this particular style were sold in the United States. A bloody footprint in the Bronco also matched the shoe type. But where were those shoes? During the criminal trial, Simpson denied ever owning them. If Bruno Magli makes shoes that look like the shoes they had in court that's involved in this case, I would have never worn those ugly ass shoes. Remember Nicole's sister? Dominique, yeah. So I tell her, listen, I got a little something I want to show you. I just want to see if you can identify these shoes. Well, Nicole bought some Bruno Mollies back in New York and she gave some to OJ. She says at Easter, he was wearing them. When the Goldman sued Simpson for wrongful death in the civil trial, their attorneys presented a photo showing O.J. wearing those Bruno Mali shoes on a football field. Even while being shown a photo of himself wearing the shoes, he still denied he was wearing them. Yeah, you heard that right. His attorney's theory? The photograph was doctored. We'll hear more about the civil trial in future episodes, but those shoes helped lead to a major verdict in favor of the Goldman and Brown families. Tom, I I hear your frustration so much with this case, and I I think I'm almost afraid to ask, but is there anything you wish that you could say to Judge Ito at this point? Okay, number one, you should have gagged all of the attorneys. There were only two people gagged during this whole affair, Phil and me. Everybody else could say anything they wanted. These attorneys got out three times a day to the media during trial and ripped witnesses up one side and down the other before they got on the stand, while they were on the stand, and after they got off the stand. If there's a gag order, this doesn't happen. Now that is affecting evidence, and the media eats this crap up. I, I, I wonder, you know, I know you said that you didn't retire for two years, but how was that hard for you to keep going? The reason I left, I was ready. Yeah. Two and a half years, I was doing other cases, and when the media would show up, They'd be throwing questions at me while I'm trying to do my job. They'd people following me and coming to phone calls, and that gets old. So would it be fair to say that you haven't lost any faith in the system? Uh, I, I lose faith in people, not in the system. We have a wonderful system if you play by the rules. 
I'm a busy working parent and the last thing I want to do is handle my insurance. I just, I mean, it's like overwhelming. I run a business, so I have insurance needs there. I have to maintain my health insurance, my life insurance, my auto insurance. I mean, I just got my kid a car, so he needs insurance. I've got five, six, I don't know how many animals I have in my house. They need insurance. It's just so overwhelming. So that's why I love Policy Genius because it's an easy way to shop for insurance online. In just two minutes, I mean, who doesn't have two minutes, right? So in two minutes, you can compare quotes from top insurers to find your best price. And once you apply, the Policy Genius team will handle all of the paperwork and red tape for you. There's no sales pressure. There are no hidden fees. It's just financial protection and peace of mind. So if you need life insurance, but you're busy doing literally anything else, check out Policy Genius. It's the easiest way to compare all the top insurers and find the best value for you. PolicyGenius.com. Nobody wants to shop for insurance. That's why they've made it so easy. Now, obviously, Kim, we only played just a couple of clips of the Bronco chase, but it went on and on. 95 million people were watching. I mean, people were so enthralled by the bizarre nature of what was happening. Domino's sold a record number of pizzas during the case because they didn't want to miss a moment. I didn't know that. That's a fun fact. Um, another fun fact is I didn't pee for the entire time that the Bronco chase was going on because I like. That's not a fun fact for you, is it? It was not a fun fact. Um, but the point is, is I too uh, was not leaving the couch. We had a house full of people, and we were all huddled around watching, and no one was breathing. I mean, we just stood there in complete awe. It has to be so weird for you. It was weird because there was people hoping that he would kill himself. And there were people that were wanting it just to end. And my dad and I just didn't. We we wanted him to be brought in and held accountable. And we wanted to see the process through. I want to get to this interrogation. OJ says he's bleeding because of a golf injury. So I just want to go through this a little bit with you. Top golf injuries. Number one is low back pain. Mm. Two, golfer's elbow. Three, sunburn. Four, knee pain. Five, shoulder pain. And six, alligator bites? Where do we get this? No no cuts on your hand? No, no. This Alligator bites might have come from a Snapple cap. But the fact (laughs) is, cuts are not on the list. And we Googled everything you could possibly Google. It didn't make any sense. None of it made sense, even to say that he cut his hand on a glass because, you know, Tom mentioned um, at some point in our conversation that the glass never broke. He threw the glass, but they never broke it. And that evidence never got put in either. While Tom was talking, there was a sense of real pain in you. Hearing him list all the areas that he thought Marsha blew it, that was really hard to hear because at the time, that's not the impression I was getting from him. Did you know about this evidence that they didn't put in? Did you know there was somebody who thought they saw O.J. maybe hiding the the clothes or the knife at the airport? Yeah, I kind of remember that. But, you know, this is this is where my old brain comes in. I don't remember if it was 25 years ago that I remember that and, and was told why it didn't happen or if it was just over the years I've learned things. But it, it's not so much the individual pieces of evidence. It's just hearing them boom, 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 like just rattled off in in, in order that didn't get put in that. that. That's what hit me hard. And blood 
on socks. OJ's blood was on his socks that were found in his house, but so was Nicole's. Right. Oh, which which conspiracy can we pull from from that one? That was um they they stole some blood from Nicole's autopsy and then they poured it on the socks or rubbed it on the socks. I don't know, whatever. So Tom Lang and his partner Phil Van Adder were accused of being dirty cops. At that point, the defense was throwing everything up against the wall to see what stuck, and I guess all of it did. <laughs> so even hearing mistakes that may or may not have happened, there was no conspiracy. There was no dishonesty. None of it makes sense to a logical brain. Yeah. has always been a source of strength for our family. But whatever mistakes you think that the LAPD made with this case, the entire department treated us with great respect and care. The next person you're going to hear from, lead prosecutor Marsha Clark, did the same, but in a slightly different way. Look how cute you are. This is so nice to see you. I am so happy to see you. What are you doing? (sighs) Just life. Being a parent and this. Being a parent, tell me. So mine's 15. Oh my God. Yeah, he just got his learner's permit. Oh my God. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh dear. But yeah, I mean, he's he's good. It's interesting to kind of watch things through his eyes. Yeah. And so having a lot of the trial stuff um, come back around is interesting yeah. because he's learning and asking questions. I wrote a book called Media Circus, and he read it for a book report. Oh, my God, that's great. Yeah, I was like, oh, wow, I'm so proud of you. Yeah, Thank you. Yeah, that's it was so exciting. Cool. I mean, he missed all the key points, oh. and, you know, he's just—he's a little lame, I know. But. <laughs> I was like, you missed—this is the most important part of the story, Sam. <laughs> oh, where was that in the story? I'm like, oh. Okay. <laughs> Dumb kid. Marsha, the police didn't even send someone out to break the news to my father in person. The L.A. coroner called us to tell us about Ron's death. Poof. Yeah, that was pretty crappy. We always wondered why no one ever showed up at our house. That's a good question. I mean, really, I don't know. I can imagine somebody saying, somebody had better call them because the press is going to pick this up any second. Yeah, but somebody managed to get to the Browns' house. I feel badly for Claudia Ratcliffe. She was the coroner that called, I will never forget her name, who told my dad and Patty... And within about a minute and a half, it was on the news. My brother was the other victim. Police will continue to investigate the brutal slaying of Simpson's ex-wife, Nicole Simpson, and her friend, 25-year-old Ronald Goldman, who was a local waiter. And then the rest is history. I love my son dearly. We're going to miss him a lot. And we'll miss him. Thank you. just sitting with my grief and trying to understand was a lot. And I had no idea what I was doing. I mean, I've never been to a funeral before. I dropped out of school. I moved into my dead brother's room and I was living with my family again and I had my cat and my duffel bag. I mean, that's really all that I had. Then I'm in this whole world that I've only seen on television. You know, I'd never, ever set foot in a courtroom before with the TV and the media and all that stuff. I never 
saw anything like it before. Haven't seen anything like it since. Yeah. There were people that thought that when you first were assigned to the case. I mean, how did you, as a, as a prosecutor, who I'm sure felt pretty confident in your skills, how do you balance that at that time that you're thinking, oh my God, the whole world thinks I'm not capable. I can't handle this. I didn't think that. Well, I, I, don't, I, mean, I don't know. That's I'm hoping you didn't, but I, <laughs> but I just mean there were people that, that came out and said, Marsha's never tried a high-profile case before. So they're wrong because I did. A few, actually. I had tried the Rebecca Schaefer case. Right, right. I had tried the Church of Mount Olive case, which was at the time high-profile. Yeah. There, I had, had actually had more than most. Um, that said... Um, I had more experience in trying homicides than Johnny did. Yeah. Certainly more experience trying cases than Bob Shapiro did. Yeah. He settles everything. Right. So, you know, I laughed whenever I heard that sort of thing. Johnny Cochran and Robert Shapiro were two members of the Simpson Legal Defense known as the Dream Team. Robert Shapiro helped to build the high-profile brain trust that included some of the most brilliant defense attorneys in the country. Johnny Cochran took over as the lead during the trial. It's a matter of people seeing who's more famous and saying that person must be better. Right. Okay, I'm not as famous because I'm a prosecutor and we don't go out to the press and we don't try to da-da-da-da-da-da sell ourselves the way the defense did. I knew the truth. I knew what I had done. And I knew I was as experienced and more so than most on that team. Right. So it didn't matter to me. That kind of public perception is always so silly and it's based on so many superficial things that have no basis in substance at all. So what was the toughest thing that you were up against? What Chris and I were very painfully aware of was that we were up against not the case itself, but 400 years of social injustice, the Rodney King riots, the Rodney King verdict. The jury in the Los Angeles police brutality trial has just reached its verdict. The four police officers who were videotaped repeatedly beating an unarmed man were found not guilty on all but one count. The violence erupted after the acquittal of four white policemen in the beating trial, black motorist Rodney King. There's been looting, buildings have been set ablaze, and some motorists have been dragged from their cars and beaten amid the violence. All of that was what we were up against. Evidence is all we had to fight with, Yeah. you know? It was always from day one about whether we could overcome the non-evidentiary part of the trial, whether we could overcome the issues regarding race and the issues regarding social injustice. They were playing the race card. We had the evidence card, but the evidence card can't win against an issue that large. The only things that kept me focused was when the killer would come in in the morning, I would just stop everything and I would watch him walk in and out. And I would just, I was laser beamed onto him because it was the only control that I had at that mm-hmm. moment because everything else had nothing to do with me anymore. And I was like, I, this is my 30 seconds right here. I got this, walking him in and out of the room. And knowing that I was getting under the skin of the defense, like it felt powerful because I felt like they had usurped all of my power throughout that whole entire process. Yeah. I mean, and that's true. I think it's the hardest part of being in your shoes. I remember when we first met, you were so warm and gracious and open and, you know, my door is always open. And then as time went on, things shifted. You became a little less um, available. I know. Um, Do you know why? Oh, yeah, I know why. To my great regret, 
more and more got heaped on my shoulders. More and more I was being pushed out to talk to the press. Go talk here, go talk there, press conference here, press conference there, and talk to this witness and do this and do that. And uh, so I was running literally 24-7. Believe me, I hate the memory of that. I was getting dragged around with the custody battle as well. I know well. you were, I know. I got pulled in a thousand directions. I was like, I don't I don't understand. Like, yeah. we're, we're, I'm here, I'm, yeah. I'm in this with you. Like, yeah. I'm feeling this too. God, I'm so sorry um, you felt that way. Well, I'm so sorry. I regretted it. While I was clearing the air with Marsha, I wanted to talk to her about Judge Ito. In the last 20 plus years, I really hold him completely accountable. I do too. It's fascinating to me how so many people have different perceptions of Judge Ito. So many people thought he just had no control. Right. Your Honor, I'm so offended at Mr. Shapiro's remarks. The issue here is whether this defendant killed Nicole Brown or Ron Goldman or not. The issue here isn't my ethics. The issue here isn't racism. The issue here isn't Detective Furman. And it isn't their egos. This case is a circus, and they've made it a circus. I do think that the celebrity aspect had an impact, and I also think that the cameras in there had an impact. Yes. We would get called into chambers at every break because celebrities wanted to meet the prosecution. Are you kidding me? At one oh, point, I didn't introducing know that. me to yeah, Jimmy Dean. You know, I love your sausage, man, but this is, <laughs> you know, a murder Wait, trial. Wanted to sponsor the wanted to sponsor the trial. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Or provide free breakfast. Free, uh, you know, it was crazy. And, and Ito would proudly brag about. Look at the person I met. Look whose autograph I got. Look who left a photograph with me. Blah blah blah. You know, all this crazy, egotistical, completely off-the-wall kind of attitude. It was just starstruck. Was the defense equally appalled by that, or did they appreciate that, too? No, they could see what it was. It yeah. served them. Yeah. And I'm sure, knowing Johnny, yeah. he was laughing behind his hand the whole time. I struggle because a part of me thinks, thank God we had the cameras, because if we only were listening to the pundits and what their rendition was of what happened in court that day, people would walk away thinking, oh, yeah, totally not guilty. Right. Legal experts say there are many loose ends. It is possible these jurors will go, well, you know, maybe he's not a very nice guy and maybe he's kind of a bad guy, but I don't necessarily see an absolute pattern that would then end in someone being killed. They say you lose and win your case in jury selection. I think yeah. it's true, 100% true. We got double whammied when it came to jury selection because a lot of white people got their subpoena for downtown Los Angeles, knew about the trial, balled it up and threw it in the trash. Denver showed up. On top of that, we got rulings from the bench when it came to dismissing jurors for falsifying their jury affidavits. For example, I would have a jury questionnaire and it's, it was a lengthy one, but I put tripwires in it on purpose. In the beginning, do you watch the news? Oh yeah, I watch at five and six o'clock. What channels do you watch? Four, five, and seven. Then you come to the end of the questionnaire. What have you heard about this case in the news? Nothing. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> really nothing? That's impossible. So people were trying very hard to get on the jury who are afraid to say, I already know stuff about this case. Yeah. Here's where things went awry with Ito. 
It is not required that a juror know nothing about the case to qualify to sit on the jury. Right. And when you have a high-profile case, truly, especially in this day and age, but then too, impossible. And all you're going to do is encourage a jury of liars because they can't admit that they know anything about the case or they'll get excused. Right. The issue is whether they can set aside what they heard and judge the case fairly on the evidence that comes into court only. That's the issue. Speaking of the Bronco, I always wanted to know, why wasn't that ever put into evidence? This just kind of brings up a larger issue that every single piece of evidence was hotly debated, discussed, analyzed thoroughly, sifted through for the pros and cons. In most cases, every piece of evidence you introduce has a downside. In the Bronco chase, there was much more down than up. Here's why. The best part of the Bronco chase for us was the duffel bag that had his passport, the money. money. The problem with that was we could not prove who put it there. Uh. Remember, they're in Al Cowling's car. Right. Not Simpson's. Right. We don't know how the duffel bag got there. We don't know when it got there. Al Cowling himself could have packed that up without Simpson knowing. Right. So that really powerful kind of incriminating evidence is neutralized. It's easy cross-examination to completely shred that piece of evidence. And what about the witnesses that weren't called? Like Jill Shively. Oh, no. Jill Shively says she almost got into a car accident with O.J. Simpson on the night of the murders. She says she's heading out. Simpson is driving away from the direction of Nicole's condo on Bundy. According to Jill, he nearly hit her. He lashed out at her and he kept going. Jill says she reported it to the police. She recognized Simpson and said he appeared to be drunk, was driving aggressively and without headlights on. She was never called to testify at the trial. She came forward early on, before we went to the grand jury. She seemed like the ideal witness. She saw him driving the Bronco right near Bundy at the appropriate time, acting crazy and driving recklessly. Uh Her story was eminently plausible. So that's great. Now, before we put her on before the grand jury, we say, please do not talk to the press. Please do not sell your story. Okay, so we put her on at the grand jury. She does well. After her testimony, she's photographed leaving the courthouse, and then it comes to light. She has sold her story to hard copy or something. She posed with a big picture of the check. Then it comes out. The people who live in her apartment building say, you can't trust her. She is a liar. We, uh, we think he's guilty. We hate the fact that we have to tell you this, but we're telling you she's terrible, she's this, she's that. So we start digging and digging and digging and getting into it, and then we find out that, sure enough, she's a con artist. She was found to be a complete liar. So it wasn't just that she sold her story. It was that multiple people came forward who knew her, as well as a couple of lawsuits that came about because she was a liar. I had to then go to the grand jury and strike all of her testimony. Oh, I don't think I knew that that happened. Yeah, I had to because there's no credibility left. Does it matter that she called 911 that night and said, this is what I saw? If I had that tape, it would have been something to at least corroborate her. I had nothing to corroborate her. Jill has told people that you blamed her for blowing the case. She didn't blow my case. She was one witness. It would have been nice to have. She blew her ability to testify. She certainly blew her ability to profit more from the case. So no single witness was important. You know, there was hair, there was fiber, there was DNA. Even with all of that, were you concerned with the bullshit tactics that the defense was trying to do to poke holes in your case? 
The attacks they were making on our case were not supportable logically. The claims of planting hair and fiber and everything like that, you know, the mass conspiracy that, on the other hand, they claim these bumbling cops. Right, right. You know what I mean? None of it made any sense. Right. In, in an ordinary case, you'd go, God, you're this is desperation time. The jury's going to see through it. In an ordinary case, they would have seen right. through it. People at the end of the day believe exactly and only what they want to believe. The, the ones who say, you know, I don't really think he's guilty. Okay, what can I say? Right. We proved it 50 ways from Sunday. Yeah. This is bonkers to me. Yeah. Well, bonkers. It is, it is objectively bonkers. Objectively bonkers. Right. You're talking to somebody who, you know, probably believes we never landed on the moon, that, you know, a lot of things, flat earth. Right, right. You know, there's no reasoning with people like that because they are refusing to take into account the evidence. If you don't want to look at the evidence, then don't talk to me about the case. Right. All right, ladies and gentlemen, you have reached a verdict in this case. Is that correct, Madam Foreman? Yeah. Then we'll accept the verdicts from you tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock. I didn't know what I thought. When we left our house that morning, because we were in Agora, um, it was about an hour drive downtown, um, and there was a kind of cool, there was an overpass that um, somebody put like a white sheet over the overpass that says, Goldman's, we love you. By the time we got to the courtroom, I couldn't, I couldn't get myself through the door. And I stood there and I literally was like paralyzed going in. I, I was panicked. Yeah. I was panicked. All right, Mr. Simpson, would you please stand and face the jury? You know, I remember um, it was very nervous in there. I just, everybody was nervous. This is Robertson. Superior Court of California, County of Los Angeles, in the matter of the people of the state of California versus Orenthal James Simpson, case number BA097211. I remember when they read Nicole's verdict first and the gasp. We, the jury, in the above entitled action, find the defendant Orenthal James Simpson not guilty of the crime of murder in violation of Penal Code Section 187A, a felony upon Nicole Brown Simpson, a human being, as charged in count one of the information. I remember your face, I remember Chris's face, um, and then I was like, shh, shh, they, they need to read Ron's because yeah. I thought. Still possible. We, the jury, in the above entitled action, find the defendant, Orenthal James Simpson, not guilty of the crime of murder in violation of Penal Code Section 187A, a felony upon Ronald Lyle Goldman, a human being, as charged in count two of the information. I thought there would be a different outcome. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, is this your verdict? So say you one, so say you all. What the fuck? I remember seeing you there and feeling my heart break again. I was glad that you were sitting with your dad. People always say that they remember my reaction, mm -hmm. but I remember everybody else's. Mm -hmm. And I remember the juror with the black power. Mm -hmm. I remember the- Remember that? Oh, mm -hmm. I remember that. And then Johnny Cochran looking over at me and smiling. From across the court, he looked over and he went, he like did like a gotcha. No. Mm -hmm. I can't think that this is how it always is. I know yeah. lots of people get justice. I know lots of people yeah. who walk into that courtroom and their person, their perpetrator gets found guilty. And I don't know why this went this way for us, um, but I can't let go completely of my faith in this system, but it's definitely been rattled. Oh yeah, agree. People routinely, every time I get interviewed say, are you okay now? Can you put it behind you? Are you over it, so to speak? And I look at them, I, I know you want me to say yes, and I'm never going to say yes because right. it's never going to be true. 
I get times, and, and it just happened the day when I took my son to get his driver's permit. I got up to the counter, and I was all famished because I forgot the certificate, and I had to go all the way home and come all the way back. And I'm standing up, and I, hi, we're here to get his permit, and I'm out of breath, and she's looking at me, and she said, oh, that's why you look familiar. Yep. I was like, what? Like, yep. totally oblivious, yeah. because yeah. I am still just the crazy mom that forgot the certificate, and I'm, you know, my, I don't have makeup on and a chapstick, and I'm, she's looking at the paperwork, and she keeps looking up like she wants to give me a hug. Uh-huh. And then she looks back down, and she says, I always thought he was guilty. I said, yeah. oh, thank you. Yeah. And then I put my arm around my son, and I started to cry. And he looked at me, and I'm like, I, I don't know why. I'm just crying. Yeah. And it just became very emotional. And then she says to me, your son's middle name is Ron. You named him after your brother. And then it was like the oh, waterworks. Yeah. Oh, of course. Because oh, that's over. <laughs> it was over. And she looked at me, Aww. and she's like, I'm sorry. I'm like, no, it's okay. Aww. Like, I, I needed that. And, you know, and, and then we got in the car, and then Sam says, why did you acknowledge who you were? You don't ever tell people who you are. And I said, I don't know. Sometimes it's okay. Yeah. Sometimes the yeah. people that are approaching me, I feel safe. After talking with Tom Lang and Marsha Clark, I felt compelled to reach out to Judge Ito. There were a lot of things I wanted to get off my chest, and I wanted to hear in his words, his perspective. He's only done one interview, and I thought maybe he'd make an exception for me. So I sat down and wrote him an email. He replied to me, and this is what he wrote, as read by one of our producers. Dear Ms. Goldman, I must decline your invitation to participate in your podcast. One of my mistakes from the Simpson criminal trial was giving an interview to a local television journalist at the beginning of the pretrial proceedings. What was pitched to me is just a few questions about what it's like to be an Asian American involved in a high profile court case was spun into something way beyond that. I was heavily criticized by colleagues whose judgment I respect. Over the years, I have developed relationships with a number of journalists and I have already committed to one for what will be my first retired interview. Chatting with you on a podcast would break that commitment. When I do finally fully retire, I will put you near the top of the list. Until then, please accept my best wishes for you and your family. So Judge Ito, when I do make my way to the top of your list, here are just a few questions that I wanted to ask you. Were you enamored by all the cameras? Did you feel like you were losing control in that courtroom? Do you have regrets? Was there ever a moment that you just wanted to say you were sorry to my dad and I? 25 years later, what would you have done differently? Maybe one day I'll get the answers. next episode of Confronting O.J. Simpson. We are going to the tennis club to sit down with Cato. They would spit at me. I had girls at a baseball game and a, and a concert put gum in my hair. <gasps> I'd have people come up and roll the window going, you goddamn motherfucking liar, having actual hate. Marsha had said to me, you blew my case. This was the biggest mistake I've ever made in my life. Why, why did you do that? Welcome to the O.J. Talk. This is the O.J. Joke Book. I'll tell a couple O.J. jokes here. What's OJ's favorite piece of kitchen furniture? She felt like you weren't giving her information. So yeah. what weren't you giving her? I feel like nothing good came out of it. Can't wait for the next episode of Confronting OJ Simpson, 
Listen to episode three right now and ad-free when you sign up for Wondery Plus at wondery.com slash plus. That's W-O-N-D-E-R-Y dot com slash P-L-U-S to hear episode three of Confronting O.J. Simpson. Want to know more about the Confronting podcast? Please follow us at at ConfrontingPod on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook for photos, additional content, and discussions about the podcast. We are all confronting something, and I look forward to continuing the discussions from our episodes over social media with all of you. If you enjoyed this one, please subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever platform you listen to podcasts. Thank you for going on this journey with me. Confronting O.J. Simpson is executive produced by me, Kim Goldman, and my co-host, Nancy Glass. Along with executive producers, Ben Fetterman and Andrea Gunning, supervising producer, Carrie Hartman. Produced by Julie Clark and Chris O'Ryan. Story producer, Tony Davis. Audio editing done by lead editor, Matt Delvecchio, and editor, Dean Welsh. The archive, research, and production team includes Jamie Richard, Megan Paisley, Jessica Little, and Brianna Fars. Other members of the production team include Kenny Kohler and Mark Downing. Bart McCatchy was the post-supervising producer. Audio mix done by Dave Saya, assisted by Dale Epperson. Music and original composition created by Mive Music. And special thanks to Laurent Joven at Migrate Sound. Confronting O.J. Simpson was produced by Glass Entertainment Group in partnership with Wondery. Some material, including court testimony, was edited for time.